means. means. I call this, what's happening here, is the case of the moral maloik. Not the physical maloik, but the spiritual maloik. The way you can tell the moral maloik has hexed somebody or has bewitched someone is according to Paul in verse 3, they start living again by the flesh. Look at verse 3. Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? The word human effort in the Greek is sarx, or the flesh, having the flesh control you. That's a sign the maloik has you. The moral maloik has you walking under the power of the flesh once again. According to Galatians 2.21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. What's happened? They set it aside once again to embrace the law. We keep talking about this, but in my mind, we have to because we are so prone to the maloik. I'll show you uh, how susceptible we are. I believe the flesh is always ready to pounce. It's kind of like the walking flesh and the walking dead. It's ready to go after you any minute. It craves personal recognition. It wants it. Like a fly savors dung. It just flies to personal pride. One writer says the flesh refers to all that a person is as the product of natural generation, apart from the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. It's all that a person is based on their natural birth, without the Spirit of God influencing them. That's what the flesh is. In other words, as Francis Schaeffer would say, it's man in his mannishness. And in our mannish, mannishness, we want to advertise our accomplishments. We all do. We want to push our position and status. We want to flaunt our family background. We want to exaggerate all of our experiences as if ours are the greatest. We want to bank on our bank accounts. Look at my salary. We want to amplify our abilities and inflate our intelligence, thinking all of this, all of these qualities, all of this is enough to impress other people and more importantly, by these, we can impress God. He will be impressed. You can hit that so the slide's really cool. We can impress God, see? All those things make him want me. He will view me as, as a desirable servant to come to his kingdom. The Maloik has us believing that all these things make us better than other people and have the potential to carry out the law where God will have no other choice but to accept us. I'll just give you a test to see if you have the maloik. First of all, take a deep breath. Take a deep breath. Okay. Step one is done. Now, in the safety of your own mind, answer this question. Why are you better than the person sitting next to you? Maybe that's too tough because men are sitting next to their wives and you're not allowed to go there mentally, so here I'll give you another question. Take a deep breath again. This one will really show you if you have the maloik. Why are you better than the person who has skipped church today and is sleeping in his camper or driving to the beach or is still getting over last night's hangover? Why are you better than them? I'll give you an answer that the Pharisees gave. 
go to Luke 18, 9 to 14. You can see the Maloik very clearly in this passage. Luke 18, and just watch how vivid Christ is in describing it. Luke 18, 9 to 14. should say, as a preamble, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. But this isn't really a parable. It's probably a true story. Jesus was noticing the behavior of people. In verse 9, listen to how he begins it. To some who were confident of their own righteousness. That's the flesh. That's the malloy. To those who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. Look down on everybody else. Listen to what they say. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up, so he vaunted himself up, and he prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Robbers. Evildoers. Adulterers. Or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. See? He's talking about his accomplishments, his status, his money, and his ability. And he's looking down on everybody else. See that? But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. And that's the point. That's what we're going to talk about, being justified, being made right in the eyes of God. That guy was. The other guy wasn't. Because the mloik, this confidence in self, kept him from it. Let's go back to Galatians. My point today is you must defend yourself from this hideous curse. And to help you, Paul gives us three ways to ward off the mloik. Three ways. Like garlic to a vampire or light to a cave troll, these three charms, when properly understood and applied, will ward off the maloik. Are you guys ready to learn the three ways to stop it? Okay, number one. First of all, you need to understand a very vivid picture that was given to you. You've got to understand it. Verse one. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I need to point out some things about the language of this verse. First of all, the phrase clearly portrayed in the Greek means prographo, which means to paste up a placard around town to announce news of how incredible this news is. I want everybody to know, so I put this placard, this poster board up. I want everybody who walks by to see it. That's what that means, clearly portrayed. Like our modern-day political signs, that's a placard. Or wartime information for bomb shelters. Paul says something was clearly posted up and was obvious to all of us, and it was clearly legible for us to read. What was it? Well, Jesus Christ, of course. He's lifted high and across the sea. But notice the language. It says... Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. That's the key part. Not just Jesus was on a cross, but that he was 
crucified. The word crucified is in the perfect tense, which means it is a past action. It is a past action that's been completed, and now we receive the results of that completed action. And it's, so it's not just Jesus hanging on the tree, but it's Paul's clear preaching about the, re, the crucifixion and the resurrection, meaning it's finished, he's been crucified, it's over. Let me, let me try to get this across in a better way. This will probably help. Did you know that there has been a subtle sort of underground, that's the best way I could put it, disagreement between Roman Catholics and Protestants on how a crucifix or cross should look? I don't know if you've ever noticed it, but it's, it's there. If you were to go into a Catholic church or look at the Pope's staff, which has the crucifix on the top, there you will find a cross still holding the body of Jesus. It will look like that. That is not merely an artistic preference. It is a purposeful statement of theology. In Roman Catholic doctrine, Jesus dies every time Mass is said at the altar. In mystical reality, Jesus dies again and again and again. That's why if you go to Roman Catholic Mass, Jesus is known as the perpetual sacrifice. You'll hear the priest utter those words from his mouth. He is still in the mind of the priest and the Catholic theologian. Most Catholics don't know this. But in the, those who are in the law of Catholic doctrine, Jesus is still dying on the cross. His body's still up there. Practically, what this means for the Christian is that every sin and bad action we make, Jesus has to die for it again. Just like the Old Testament sacrifices, they needed to bring another ox, another bull, another dove to be sacrificed. It never stops. It's never over. So to me, it's a subtle reminder that says you still have much to do. It's never done. Behave, or Jesus will have to suffer again for you. So honestly, this crucifix is shouting, it isn't finished. This will not ward off the maloik. This, won't, this might ward off a vampire, but it will not ward off a maloik. It won't. It actually energizes the flesh. Because i got to do more. The guilt machine kicks into high gear again. Here's the Protestant cross. It's empty. And the reason is simple. As Galatians 3.1 says, Christ was, past tense, perfect tense, clearly portrayed as crucified. Listen to H.A. Ironside on Christ's death. If Christ has actually given himself for me, it is because it was impossible for me to do one thing to save myself. Because I could not fit myself for the presence of God. Because I could not cleanse my heart from sin. Because no work of righteousness of mine could fit me for a place with the Lord. He had to come from heaven and give himself for me in the cross. How then can I think of turning back to the ground of human merit as a means of securing salvation? Shall I go back to the law to complete the work he has done? Surely not. So don't you see? The picture of Jesus as crucified is clear as crystal. It's clear. Jesus did what my flesh could not do. He stared down into the mouth of God's wrath, full force, 
and withstood it, all of it, every last drop, so you don't have to, so quit trying. Don't buy the Maloik. Second thing to ward off the Maloik. Acknowledge his power. Listen to verses 2 through 5. I would like you to learn just one thing. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? This is really a powerful argument. You'll, you'll see in a second. Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing? If it really was for nothing? Does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? So here's the point. The second way to ward off the Maloik is to ask the question, when and how did the Holy Spirit come? When and how did God or the second person come into my life? How did He come? By what means? For 2,000 years, before Jesus came, the law never once brought the Spirit. Never once. Then... As promised by the Lord Himself, after He ascended into heaven, the Spirit came down at Pentecost. Why did He come down at Pentecost? Well, not because they were Jewish. It had nothing to do with it. Or they were law-abiding. But because they were believers in Christ. And from then on, the pattern of the Holy Spirit's arrival and empowerment has always been the same. It's threefold. Number one, initial belief brings justification. We talked about that last week. That's where when I believe that Christ died for me, the Spirit enters into my life. He's in me. He's mine. If you don't believe me, read Ephesians chapter 1, 11 through 14. Having believed, you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, guaranteeing you an inheritance. So all through Acts, you will see the same pattern. You will see Jews, Gentiles, Romans, women, men, jailers, philosophers, first believing, then receiving the Holy Spirit. The law can never make that, that claim. It can't. Religious ritual can't make that claim. Even today, when people receive the message of the Gospel, the Spirit comes in. Second thing is continual faith in His Word with cooperation of the Holy Spirit brings sanctification. Sanctification is the process of allowing God's transforming power to change you. That's what that means. And it's done through the Spirit, not the law. The Spirit does it. Part of change, according to verse 4, also includes suffering. The Gentiles, the Galatians, suffered an awful lot for their faith because they believed as Christ is Lord and not Caesar is Lord. They suffered a lot. Paul said so. What was that suffering for? Was it for nothing? Paul didn't want them to go back to Judaism. He wanted them to claim and cling to the name of Christ alone. The third thing, I'd say it, often you will see manifestations of his power through the Spirit. In the early church, look at verse 5, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? 
This manifestation of his power in the early church, the dead were raised, the blind were given sight, the lame could walk, and it wasn't because of the law. It was because of the Spirit. It is still true. Miracles still happen. There are healings. And more than anything else, the greatest miracle is to see radical life transformation. It's overwhelming. I have seen drunks become sober, sex addicts become self-controlled, hostile marriages finding peace, depressed people actually find joy again. This is not, and I repeat, and you need to understand this, this is not the byproduct of the law. It is not. But only of the regenerative power of God through the Holy Spirit. I often tell people the one thing we have as pastors and as Christian counselors over secular counselors we have regeneration as our greatest tool. You can give people new habits to form, but we can, through faith, offer people the Holy Spirit who can literally take somebody and change them. Here's a question for you. Have you ever noticed, and be honest about this, think about it a second. Have you ever noticed people who live by the law, seem to calcify over time. They get crusty. They get, they get these scales on them. People who live by set standards, laws, and traditions are the ones you will find to be the most easily offended, hypercritical, superior, demanding. Often these are the people that are not approachable at all. When you fail, they are judgmental. And they're miserable. But those who live off grace seem quick to forgive. They show mercy. And they laugh. They can laugh. Not so the Pharisee. Hmm, rotten robbers, evildoers, adulterers, tax collectors. I'm glad I'm not like them. The third way we can ward off the maloic, and I like this one. This is really cool. The third way, if you really want to ward off the maloic, is to go back to the first precedent case where it was involved. You need to review precedent law, biblical case law. That was first established in God's court because this first case law shows us very evidentially what saves. It's very obvious. In common law legal systems, a precedent is a legal case establishing a principle or rule that a court adopts when deciding later cases with similar issues or facts based on prior trial results. That's what a precedent case is. Something happened in the past, the judge ruled on it, then you can use that past case as something that's happening today that has similar situations around it. That's what case law is. What is our case law? Well, it's about a guy by the name of Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. You know this guy. Here's the case. Occupation of Abraham. He was a rich landowner, and he's from the city of Ur. And we learn about him in verse 6 through 8. Listen to what it says. Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand, then, that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed 
through you. Let's, the case is very straightforward. Let's work through it. And this is the case that sets a legal precedent in the mind of God. This is God's legal precedent. He states it both here and in Romans chapter 4, the exact case to show that this precedent is powerful. First of all, Abraham was called out by God to leave his people and home and start a new people, a new tribe, a new nation called the Hebrews. Hebrews, equivalent to Jews. There was a major problem with this plan, and that's point number one. At the age of 86, age of 86, he had no children, no legal heir to his land, he had no heir to his animals, nobody to take his riches. And so how do you start a new nation with no heir? How? That's a problem. That's a real problem. So as you see, Abraham is in, I mean, that's a bad situation. 86 and your wife's just as old, you're in bad trouble. I'll just say you are. Well, here's the second part. God heard and saw his problem. So he came to Abraham and promised him a son and a progeny as many as the stars in the sky. He gave him a promise. So that is, okay, you can read that in Genesis 15, 4-5. God saw, he knew Abraham's heart, and he said, don't worry, buddy. You'll have more than enough kids. You'll be just fine. This brings up another problem. Hadn't God forgot about his wife who was already past menopause? She was old, crusty, and just as dusty as Abraham. She couldn't have any more kids. She was well past childbearing years. That's what it says in Genesis 18, 11 to 12. Her womb dried up. She hears that she's going to have a kid, so she starts laughing. I don't know if she's laughed out of joy or just sheer disbelief. You Come on. I'm going to have a child. This is nuts. It's crazy. This lady's old. Well, when Abraham heard this for the first time, that he was going to have a child, he believed God. And that is the key point. That's the kicker. Genesis 15, 5. He believed. And then it says, at this moment, God transferred to Abraham his righteous standing. He stamped on Abraham a seal of approval. And from that time on, God considered Abraham 100% good in his book. He was righteous. He received and he took on God's righteous standing, righteous approval. He was satisfied with Abraham. That's the point of this precedent case. Now for the focal point of the argument, and it doesn't end there because this is where it gets very interesting. At the age of 99, at the age of 99, that is 13 years after the promise, 13 years after the promise, God's declaration of righteousness, 13 years after that, circumcision was first introduced. Why is that so important, you ask? Big deal. Because if we go back to the situation in Galatia, the Judaizers, the men with the Maloik, taught that a man needed to be circumcised in order to be considered righteous. Which came first? Righteousness or circumcision? Clearly, 13 years earlier, Abraham was considered righteous. 
And yet in this precedent case, belief came first. That's why it's so important. That's why he's using this case. And not only that, if you go to Galatians 3, look at verse 17. He's going to highlight one more thing to put the nail in the coffin. Verse 17, Galatians 3. It says, what I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God, thus done away with the promise. 430 years later, Moses brought down the Ten Commandments. So the law came a whole 430 years later. So for those religious zealots who believe obedience to the law is the only way to gain God's favor, they must have never studied the law. They don't know the law. That is why it's very intriguing. When you study Jesus as he argues the Pharisees in the New Testament, one of his favorite things to tell them after he gets in an argument with them, he says two things. You neither know the Scriptures nor the power of God. And in this case, they clearly don't understand precedent law. So what you can say is if somebody says, you need to be obedient, you need to be, law, you need to be religiously dutiful, if God is going to accept you, say, be gone, Maloik. Give them that. Yeah, get out of here. I got precedent law on my side. Paul Lins's argument in verse 9. Listen to what he says. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So all those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. He says you are included in the promise that Abraham received if you accept it by faith. You're included in the promise. What's that? You're righteous. Let me show you a highly technical picture. I drew this while I was really working hard on this. It's a highly technical picture. Very, I use my, all of my engineering skills, and hopefully this will show you how you can become a child of God. There's the guy right there. He's, got, he's purple. He's got a ball and chain. He's, he's in trouble. He's got hot coffee spilled on his head. It's a bad day for this guy. But he's in trouble. He's in trouble. You can imagine this is Abraham and Sarah. They don't have any kids. You can imagine the person who just was uh, caught in adultery in the Old Testament. You can imagine this is the Gentile in the New Testament. God sees. God sees their bondage. God sees and he wants to rescue them. How does he rescue them? He sends a promise to them. I promise you, Abraham, you'll have many sons and daughters. I promise you, Chris Weeks, I sent my son to die for you. I promise you, if you believe that, you'll be saved. I promise it. It's the same route that Abraham was saved. I was. So I listen to him. And Hebrews says, faith is predicated on two things. I believe he exists. That means I believe this God in heaven exists, that he's good, that he's all-powerful, and he's holy. I believe that. And I, re- I believe he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So I believe that he's going to fulfill his promise. So what I do is I realize at that moment, in my bondage, I just I throw down everything and I say, God, you save me. Utter dependence. you got to do it. One of the coolest prayers in the Old Testament is Daniel says to God, God, will you restore your city and your because it has nothing to do with us, but your name's at stake. When we go to God in faith, his name's at stake. He promised us something. 
So we go to him and we said, God, you told me I'll be saved if I believe in Christ. You told me. So if I'm not, this is on you. His name's at stake. Abraham can go, God, you told me that I was going to have a kid. I can't do it. My wife can't do it. This is on you. I trust you, and it's you are to blame if this doesn't come through. God likes that, believe it or not. Throw down the gauntlet on him. He loves that kind of prayer. So then what happens is God responds to our faith with grace. We are set free, and we are no longer purple. We are white. And no more coffee on the head. It's great. Highly technical, but it should speak to you. I have a confession to make. As a kid, I was very, very superstitious. I too, I, was, I never really knew much about the Maloic, but I was very superstitious, especially when it came to playing baseball. I loved baseball. I had to always wear the same socks, same t-shirt. I had the same routine. Here's my routine. And Mike, you'll like this routine. My game was usually at about 6 o'clock, but at 4 o'clock, Lost in Space would come on on Channel 43 in Cleveland, Ohio. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger, danger. I'd watch. I had to watch that show. Then I'd make hot dogs in a boiled pan of water, and I would have chicken noodle soup on the side. Then I would arrive an hour early before the game because I really believe this system brought me good luck. But what was most obsessive about me was weather. I was a weather... I was paranoid about the weather. I believed if we had too many sunny days in a row, a storm was going to come right at game time at 6 o'clock. So I used to stand on the railroad tracks hours before the game just watching the sky. I was obsessed. In my pea-sized brain, I believed that God would not allow me good until I paid him off with some bad. I treated religion the same way. If I didn't go to church, I knew something bad was going to happen to me. So instead of Going to church out of love for Christ, I went to ward off God's disfavor. I did that for 23 years. Even if I sat through it with a grumpy face or snoozing through the message, if I did the liturgy, I paid God off for another week. But if I missed, oh boy, something was going to happen bad. The maloik of God was bearing down on me, and I felt it. One time when I was sick and I couldn't attend church, I asked my dad to sneak me a communion wafer home just to be on the safe side. And he did. Came in kind of like he had some, hey, Chris, I got something for you. Communion. <laughs> but I took it. I'm like, all right, hopefully God won't be upset. And then a few weeks after I gave my life to Christ, I was reading a book up in my bedroom. And a writer was commenting on this verse, Colossians 2.13. Here's what it says. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. The commentator said all included our past sins, our present sins, and in drum roll, all of our future sins as well. That means he writes, God is forever pleased with me. I ran down. I said, Dad, did you know this? That when I believe in Jesus, all my future sins are, they're, they're paid for? He goes, yeah, I knew that. Then why didn't you tell me? Why didn't somebody tell me? I was, super, I was superstitiously enchained. 
every time I sinned, I had to go to church. In trouble if I don't. What if I died not going to church or receiving communion? Ah, I was superstitious, I tell you. But that verse, what it did for me, it stopped me from worrying about the evil lie of God ever again. The maloik was stopped. It was stopped. And it was only by grace. Never forget this. That grace is the only thing that can completely overcome ignorance and superstition. That's it. Because it's very powerful. The maloik is very powerful. People will persuade you, you don't do enough. You're not serious enough. But when I know when that cross is empty, it's done. God's grace is completely yours through faith. You've got three things to prove it. A picture. The second thing you got is you got his power. Third thing is you have a precedent case to argue with. So I know some of you are, have one more question. So in, you awfully, oftentimes you'll see Pastor Ken walking around here with a grimace on, thinking he's giving you the malloy. He's just got a stigmatism, so don't worry about it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Bible. It means so much to us. In Christ's name, amen.